Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. At the Coca-Cola Company, Keurig Dr. Pepper, and PepsiCo, some of our bottles can be remade in a whole new way, using 100% recycled plastic. New bottles using no new plastic, except the caps and labels. Learn more at madetoberemade.org. Hey, it's Kara. You might have seen some news about this podcast recently. It's true, after five incredible years and more than 500 episodes, I'm going to be leaving Recode Decode and starting a new show over at the New York Times. But a few things are not changing. For one, Recode Decode will go on. Later this summer, my colleagues at Vox Media and New York Magazine will announce a new host, so please stay subscribed so you'll be the first to hear what's next. And in the meantime, I'm still recording new episodes of this show that will be coming out until July. We have some amazing guests lined up for my last few months. And second, even though I'm no longer the host of this show, I'm still going to be co-hosting Pivot with Scott Galloway twice a week over at New York Magazine. I'll share more details about the future when I have them, but now let's get on with today's show. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, Editor-at-Large of Recode. You may know me as the Washington Post intern from the class of 1986 who actually made something of herself, which is not true when you hear my next guest. But in my Mm -hmm. spare time, I'm just a reporter and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about power change and the people you need to know. We're part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair is Ryan Murphy, who created and produced some of the biggest TV shows in the past couple of decades, including Glee, American Horror Story, and 911. He has a brand new series out now on Netflix called Hollywood. It's about the golden age of filmmaking in the 1940s and imagines what it might have been if racist, sexist, and homophobic systems had been dismantled back then. Ryan and I also were interns at the Washington Post together. I think we were the least well-behaved interns uh, in 1986. Mm -hmm. Ryan, welcome to Recode Decode. Thank you. It's good to talk to you. I know. I I don't even remember that summer. I'll be honest with you. I mean, you were going to be a journalist and you were quite good at it, actually. I forget what you wrote about. I forget what I wrote about that year. I had a weird experience there Mm -hmm. because they, they put me in the style section Right. Which, which I kind of wanted to be in. Mm-hmm. And they didn't kind of really know what to do with me. So I, I felt like I was floundering and constantly trying to push the envelope, which yes. is a very familiar energy to me to this day. Yeah. And I have very good memories of you, however. Yeah. I really do. I think pushing the envelope was what you did. You may not remember, but you used to drive them all crazy. And it was a pleasure to me because I had worked there as an intern and other things. And it was really to watch you deal with these people who at the time were at the height of their power, really, the Washington Post was, and is back again in many ways. But uh, you were, they couldn't believe uh, this young man would just tell them where to get off. And it was such a pleasure (laughs) to watch. Every what was your memory you of it? What oh, did you... just like you, you and between you and Martha Cheryl uh, with Mary Hadar was the funniest oh. thing I've ever seen. And you just you told everyone where to stick it. It was really lovely and what you thought of things and how you thought things should change. And it's like everyone there desperately wanted to work there, and you did not seem to care whatsoever if you got a job or not. And it was a pleasure to watch. I have to say, thank you. I learned a lot, and you were an excellent writer, by the way. You were a very good journalist. And some of your stories, as I recall, were terrific. But let's get to what you're doing now. I want to talk about Hollywood, and I want to talk about Netflix and everything else. So let's talk about what you're doing right now. This is, I watched, uh, I think it's eight episodes of Hollywood, and I was really struck. It was, you have different uh, speeds. And this one was the most winsome, uh, sweet, poignant mm-hmm. idea uh, I, it's, that I've seen from you. I've seen you uh, in, a, in, a, in that sort of more sentimental kind of zone before, but this was really um, a little hard to watch, not because of that, but because it was like it never would have happened. So I just sort of was like watching people talk intelligently about racism, sexism, and homophobia was, it just never would have occurred. And for each of the characters, that was a big, a big deal. So talk a little bit about how you guys conceived of this, because it's imaginary, but it's not, correct? Or how do you look at it? Yeah, there's some there's some real people in it. Like you know, we we blend historical figures with fictional figures. So Rock Hudson is in it, um, a reimagining of Rock Hudson. Um, Anna Mae Wong is in it. Hattie McDaniel's in it. Right. These are people that Henry I just Wilson. Sort of, 
The famous agent of Rock Hudson? Yeah, the Harvey Weinstein of his day. I just sort of grew up with these figures because my grandmother was such an old golden era movie buff. So she would give me books and monster models for my birthdays, which kind of says everything about me. That's what I'm interested in. And I never understood why I was very gravitated towards these three people, but I could not consume enough material. And I remember at one point walking through a snowstorm to my local library to look in on an encyclopedia about Anna Mae Wong. And I think it wasn't until I got older and started in this business, which is so hard and felt so much rejection that I was like, oh, I understand why I was interested in it because they truly were sort of victims of the system and they were not allowed to feel their full potential and they had to pretend to be somebody to be successful. And I remember at the beginning of my career, I kind of had to pretend to be somebody to be successful. All right, talk about each of these characters in historical sense. Anna Mae Wong mm-hmm. uh, was a was an actress who really was not given the kind of part she got, had to play temptresses, sort of when they use the term oriental temptress and things mm-hmm. like that. Talk about her and each of the characters you're talking about, because they all had to, not hide, but either they were sidelined or they had to hide an essential part of themselves. Yeah, well, Anna Mae Wong was truly, I think, the first Asian movie star who was tremendously talented and had so much to give. And in our story, what we sort of dwell at was the big tragedy of her life was she was very much typecast and there was no place for her in this town. And so she had to settle sort of on sidekick parts and temptresses and, you know, the cliched stereotypical roles. So finally, the studio buys The Good Earth and there's a role made for her, the only role where she can be the lead and show all of her talents. And she, they screen tested her and everybody thought she was shooing to get it. And she gave a brilliant screen test, which we dramatize in the show. And then grown men were weeping during the screen test. It was so good. And then she found out several days later that the part went to a Caucasian woman, Louise Rainier, who had just won an Academy Award. And Louise Rainier would go on to win an Academy Award for that role in The Good Earth. And Anna Mae Wong really never recovered from that blow. I mean, she sort of suffered for years afterwards and other stereotypical sort of quote-unquote dragon lady parts. She became a drinker. She really much suffered through it. And I have always felt in my life and in the world that for me the saddest tragedy is... um, lost potential. So I was always just very moved by her. And Hattie so, McDaniel, similarly. Yeah, Hattie McDaniel sort of started with my obsession at a very young age with George Cukor. So I sort of fell into the Hattie wormhole. And I was very... Um, George Cukor is a famous director. He was famous film director, Especially of yes. women. Especially of women. Yeah, he was gay. Are. So he got the, you know, he would be given the um, female pictures and he was great with women and had a great camaraderie, so he had success after success. He was fired off of Gone with the Wind for many different reasons. But the thing about Hattie that I was obsessed with is she went to the Academy Awards and she found out that she was going to win the Academy Award because back then they leaked it early and she was not allowed in the room. She was not allowed to be in the room and she was only ushered up on stage and then shown the back entrance after she won. So the tragedy of that and her career, like Anna Mae Wong's, was also sort of sad in that she was only, she thought after she won the Academy Award as daughter, a daughter of slaves, the Mammy was sort of modeled after her own grandmother, that she would get parts. She could play a funny person or a rich person, or, but that's not what Hollywood had to offer. It was only domestic. So she also sort of ended her life and her career, I think, in a sad, forgotten regretful place. And Rock Hudson was a weird obsession of mine. Yeah, why is that? I mean, me too. In a, in a, he, I love Rock Hudson. I used to watch every Doris Day movie yeah, going. And I, I like. Him. I watched everything Rock Hudson did. I don't know why. He was impossible not to look at. He was amazing. And he, my connection with Rock Hudson, growing up gay in Indiana at a very young age, six or seven, knowing who I was and knowing that I would be punished for it just inherently and keeping this sort of a secret, even as a young baby child and i remember watching this rock hudson tv show with my grandmother who i mcmillan and wife mcmillan and wife (laughs) you're right and she said out of nowhere one day you know that rock hudson is a homo i read it 
And I remember looking at her and looking back at the screen and thinking, oh, he's like me. So there is a pathway to be successful if you're like me. Because my whole family was in the military. And I remember at the dinner table hearing stories of gay guys who were killed or beaten in prison, I mean, in the military and were sent to prison. So that I just was paralyzed. And it, he was important to me because, I don't know, I believe in this idea that if you can see it, you can become it. So I finally saw it. I saw something to move towards. So, Except he was closeted the, almost the entire time yes, until his so death. He, so it was not what you see. It was, a, no. it was a fake version. Right. But when I would watch those movies, I would be like, oh, he's pretending to be, quote unquote, straight so that he can be a success. Mm-hmm. So I, I knew that you could be gay and be a success, but that meant you had to hide who you were. So I was obsessed with that idea. And in one movie, in fact, with Doris Dan, I forget which one it was. I think it was when she was an interior direct decorator. He played, he played, he was pretending to be a straight, he was a gay man pretending to be a straight man who then pretended to be a gay man, if you remember. There was, there's a scene where he mm-hmm. acts gay, which like the, uh, the, the famous, the, sort of the effeminate version of a gay, like a stereotypical yeah. one. Yeah. And it was so awkward because I was aware he was gay too. And it was, it was, I remember thinking, this is, there is something so <laughs> sick here going on with this man, like which was, and of course, when he showed up uh, with Doris Day quite ill, it was such a shock and changed yeah. the face of AIDS. It really did. That was a moment for a lot of people, I think. Yes, and you and I then, that was the year before you and I were interns. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we grew up with this idea. At least I grew up with it. I'm not sure how you felt, but I sort of felt like if you were marginalized if you were othered, if you were gay or um, a person of color or any, even a woman, you know, mm-hmm. you could only be allowed in the club if you if you towed the line and did what the sort of white patriarchal society demanded. And even most of the time, you would have to hide who you were. So, you know, his dying of AIDS, and that's really when the world finally, and even he kind of admitted that he was gay. Mm -hmm. So it was a very, very sad ending to this life. And I was just interested from my own point of view, like what would my life have been like if I had been six and I could watch a movie that had an out gay man in it and a gay love story who was rewarded and who was seen as being successful for being authentic, what would my life look like? How different would my path forward be? Would it be radically different? I think it would have. So right. I was interested in that idea, not so just for me. So you made that world. So you made, I made that, that world. world. Movie. And yeah, it's I made jarring. that world. It's a jarring thing because you, and I'm assuming you saw Vito Russo's movie, uh, The Celluloid Closet, yeah, which you, you do begin to understand uh, the hatred of gay people when you watch that because it's yeah. clear. I had my mom watch it and she's like, oh, now I see why I'm kind of, hateful towards gay people uh, because all the the imagery and that's one of the lines you had in the movie about mm-hmm. you you have Eleanor Roosevelt of all people saying this to these movie makers you have to make this because this and you, and several characters said it from different perspectives whether people of color or gay or women if people see you then they can be you I guess that's the, the concept of it so in terms of of doing that it was a very um jarring thing to see do you actually believe that if they had done that back then if they had gotten rid of the Hayes Code, if they had been braver, if they had been their authentic selves, they would have been able to change the way the world is, Hollywood especially. I do. I mean, I think that, you know, that's a controversial idea, you know, Mm -hmm. and I don't think it would have been overnight and I don't think it would have been easy. But I think the most important thing that I think we show in the miniseries is You know, not just is it a critical success, but it's an economic success. So we'd made money. And what would have happened then is other people would have made movies like that because they would want to cash in on that money. So I think there would have been more movies, more portrayals. And I think with that, as we've seen in our own culture, starting sort of like when I started to, you know, work in Hollywood in 1998, I couldn't even have my first television show. I could not even have a woman, female cheerleader, wearing a fur coat because it was deemed too gay. Mm -hmm. And you remember me as somebody who was at the Washington Post, sort of scrappy fighter. So that's where my fight began. And I said, why? Well, because then we'll alienate an audience. How do you know? You might bring an audience in. So I've been sort of living this argument my whole career. And, you know, I think to some it may feel Pollyanna. But it's sort of a fairy tale that I believe in because I have spent so much of my career sort of saying, 
You know, not lately because I've had so many champions. You know, there was a generational shift, but early on saying, well, why? How do you know if you don't try? And I do think, I do think Hollywood does make a difference. I think if you look around at the time when Obama was president, you know, there was that one year where Glee and Modern Family were very, very popular. Mm-hmm. And I remember people writing editorials about how it was launching discussions in their families and changing hearts and minds. And it was uh, both of those shows were referenced by the Obamas. You know, we went to the White House. And were they responsible for the Marriage Equality Act? Not alone, but I think that they did do something to move America closer to equality. So I do believe in that. I've seen it with my own eyes. Right. Well, in that case, you know, you had Ellen, the sort of likable gay. Yeah. The, li- the likable, acceptable gay who was like you knew. I do. I definitely think Modern Family, for sure, with that couple. And also... Uh, Will and Grace. Per- Will and Grace mm-hmm. and your show. In particular, talking about them. I think you probably talked about more of the difficult issues. Those other shows were funny about it. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think the, the struggles of your characters were much more on the scenes. And one of the things that struck me about this, about Hollywood, is... Um, there's a lot of sex in it. There's a lot of, uh, you know, uh, I'd like you to suck my dick now or whatever. There's a lot of that mm-hmm. going on in the in, in the show. Lovely dialogue, by the way. Um, and I was watching with my son and I was like, ah. <laughs> Ooh, bad choice. <laughs> it's all right, can take it. How old is your son? I have two sons, 17 and 14, and I have a baby now because that's what lesbians do. They raise children. How old's your baby? Uh, six months. To, uh, sometime we'll have lunch. I'll tell you. Wow. <laughs> I have a lot of children's. Um, my girlfriend uh, had a baby, so I'm very excited. Um, that's great. My one son's going to college, so it, Good. I, I will now never have time off ever. I'll be dead uh, <laughs> in the end. Anyway, this is not about me. This is about you. So you, um, when you're doing this, what are you hoping to to get through to people because it's there, there, well, there is a lot of sex talk and there's a lot of nudity and people look fantastic, by the way. They're beautiful people. They're, and physically they're beautiful. And also the clothes are beautiful and the hats. I mean, the whole hat situation that was going on with, um, with the women was so good, was so great. Mm-hmm. Um, you had different ages there, which was really, yeah. I found really interesting, um, mm-hmm. different colors. But it was so jarring to see it. I almost was sort of trying to check my own prejudices. I don't know. I'm so used to not seeing such a diverse age. Well, that's just it. And I yeah, think that's... it was that's, uncomfortable for a minute. Yeah, and it's the same thing that you're talking about with sex, And winning, right? and they were winning, too. And they were winning, you know? Mm-hmm. The, and I think that I think that we've been, at least I have been, indoctrinated to this idea that, okay, if you have gay people, if you have gay men, if you have lesbians, if you have women, women of color... You can have them win, but then something has to be taken away from them. They must be punished in some way because that's how the world works. And I have always, I, I grow, grew up with that. And I've written to that. You know, I've made choices in my past where I've fallen into that trope. Mm-hmm. And as Ian and I, Ian Brennan, who co-created with me, and Janet Mock was in the writer's room, and Ned Martell, who also used to work at the Post, as we were working on the piece and talking about it, we just kept saying, well, why do they have to be punished? Why does have to have something be taken away? Why can't they just keep winning? It may feel like a fairy tale, but I cannot tell you enough that if I saw something when I was growing up that had somebody who acted, looked like me, who won and was, you saw their friendships and you saw their sex life. They weren't neutered. They weren't, you know, talk about the Rock Hudson movie. You know, we grew up in this world where gay women and gay men were the sidekicks and they had lists. Sidekicks and suicides. Yes. They they killed themselves. They never had sex. They were very prim and puritanical because that was an interpretation of straight people to how I think they really wanted gay people to be. So I was interested in, in a world that was not neutered, that was the life that I lead, which is colorful, which, you know, is sexualized, which is glamorous, which is fun. Also, there's tragedies. Also, you do cry, you're emotional. But I just wasn't interested in doing something. And people, I think, want that. And like you, they're shocked. Like, well, wait. The same thing happened to me when I did Pose. You're watching Pose, and you keep thinking that an act of violence is going to happen to a trans person, particularly in season one. We ultimately did that because we felt an obligation to be true. But we, Stephen and Brad and Janet and I, were adamant that nothing happened to the trans people. And people 
would write, like, I'm afraid to watch the show because I love the characters and I know you're going to kill her in episode a three. Yeah. There's going like, be a beating. So we literally had to issue a statement saying, we're not killing anybody in season one. You can watch knowing that you're in a safe space because people would feel triggered. So all of these things are in the water for me. I also watched that with my son. He was 13. He loved that show, which is interesting. And I was nervous watching it. And he was like, what are you so nervous about? I'm like, because they're going to die. Like, yeah. gonna, it was really interesting. All right, when we get back, I want to talk a little bit more about uh, Hollywood and also what it's like working at Netflix. Uh, Ryan made a giant deal with uh, Reed Hastings and the group at Netflix. Um, and I want to talk about that and the changing nature of Hollywood. We're here with Ryan Murphy. He's the co-creator of a new Netflix series called Hollywood, but he's so well-known. He's one of the most successful producers and writers uh, of this era, of Glee, American Horror Story, 911. There's just a long, long list of things Ryan has done. Uh, we'll be back after this. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc., This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. We're here with Ryan Murphy. He is a longtime Hollywood producer and writer, and his current uh, series is for Netflix called Hollywood. We've been talking about the characters in it, and so he's creating this sort of fantasy of what Hollywood should have been like, I guess, should have been, or that he would have liked to have been like. I thought one of the most affecting characters you had on it was, um, it, I think it's Joe Montello. Uh, yeah. Montello. Mm -hmm. I thought... That was my favorite character, and I'm not sure why, because, you know, Patti LuPone could eat up every piece of scenery. Holland Taylor's fantastic. Mm -hmm. All your new, the new people that you had who I wasn't aware of uh, were terrific. And the guy who played uh, Henry Wilson, I'm sorry, I'm totally blanking on him. The, Jim Parsons. Jim Parsons was great. He, he did a great job in that role. And his becoming, I wasn't so sure if I believed him becoming good after being so bad. Um, but nonetheless, but he, he, made he, was, he was becoming good for himself, which is yes. always what happens in Hollywood. Yes. There is yes, always yes. the act of contrition, but it really yeah. is your perp walk to get back in the game, you know? So that's, I think, very true. Yeah, and it ends on them making a, a gay love story, which was funny. Yeah. Um, I loved all these different characters, uh, and each of them sort of, one of the things that was great was they all shared the screen in an unusual way. There wasn't a star necessarily. They all seemed to get mm -hmm. a lot of time, which was mm -hmm. fascinating to watch. But my favorite character was Joe Montelli. He's playing the, the network, uh, the, the studio head, or the not the head head, but uh, that was Rob Reiner. Uh, but he was the most poignant character of all. I thought, can you talk a little bit about that character? Because I... I thought it might be you in a lot of ways, in, in weird ways, but maybe not. Maybe I'm just reading into it. Yeah, you know, he. first of all, Joe's a great friend. He is a great Broadway director with many Tonys under his belt, arguably the best, you know, theatrical director working, I think. I just had a wonderful experience with him. First of all, he was an actor. Mm -hmm. He was in Angels A Normal in Heart, Angels in America, and then he did A Normal Heart on Broadway, and then he played a different part of my um, film adaptation of that, and then we just did Boys in the Band, which won a Tony a year ago. Hard to believe we were we were walking a red carpet a year ago, but there we were. So I have a very long relationship with him. So in many ways, that part was me, and that he, you know he wanted to be an agent for change, and he wanted to take on the studio system. And similar to my path, I think that character starts off in a gentle. Well, what if we try this and? What if we hide the cotton candy, you know, in the vegetables? And then finally, he just becomes enraged at the idea that the world is not changing and he refuses to become a part of it and tells the establishment where they can stick it and is very vocal about who he is in the world and that he has been gay and he's not going to hide anymore. And I think um, we're used to seeing characters like that, you know, through the prism of people wonderful filmmakers, but like far from heaven, you know, where the gay husband finds a boyfriend, but is kind of sad and 
lives a quiet life. I mean, this character is loud and brash and builds to a volcanic eruption. And I felt very connected to that part. I think Joe did too. We did, Joe and I did a lot of work together on creating that character. And again, a character who has a happy ending in his own way, even though, you know, I'm not going to give spoilers away. You won't think that it's a happy ending, but he did. Absolutely. Him sighing in the bar was a wonderful moment. I, for anyone who lived back in the day, and Ryan and I are of a certain age where it was hard to be gay and yeah. to be out. And yeah. for him to walk into that bar and sigh was something that I, that I think is very hard to replicate anymore. But in other places in the world, you certainly can. But uh, it was a reminder of that. So talk. A l- speaking of that, showing it to the man, you've had a career where you've worked for Fox, you've worked for all kinds of different, lot for Fox. Um, but you moved last year to Netflix. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about what the difference is working in, in this case? Because this looks uh, like you didn't make any changes to what you wanted. It seems like it. I would say... Um, Why did you do it? What, what, what was your impetus besides the giant bag of money? The reason I did it was totally exemplified with this week in my life. So this week in my life, like Hollywood premieres um, on May 1st, which is a limited series. But I also have two documentaries that have come out in the past week. I um, produced a documentary called Circus of Books. That's a beautiful exploration about, which I think you would love, about Mm -hmm. the world of uh, analog being replaced by the digital world and pornography. Oh, yeah. And about, it's a wonderful story by a wonderful filmmaker about that. And then I had uh, a documentary premiere last night called The Secret Love, which is a true love story about two um, gay women who in their 90s finally have to come out in society to continue to stay together. And then Hollywood. So... Three very different pieces in one week while I'm finishing up a movie, the Boys in the Band adaptation that Joe Mantello. Oh, you're super making a movie. Dir- oh, great. Yeah, we made it, just finished a movie that Joe and Jim directed. Jim Parsons was in that. He was terrific. Yes, he is. And then I'm also finishing up a movie with Meryl Streep and Nicole Kidman and James Corden and Andrew Rannells called The Prom. So I went there just for this idea that I can do everything. I can do films. I can do documentaries, which I wanted to do. I can do television shows. I can do limited series. It was just a place where I could do everything, you know? And I have had several shows that already are on Netflix that do really big numbers for them. Glee and American Horror Story, American Crime Story. So These I was were very, sold and they were list, watched yes. there. Mm-hmm. Yes, they bought them. Mm-hmm. They were Fox properties, you know, and I still maintain a really great relationship with Fox and FX and I have several shows there still as well. So I never felt that I was leaving something. And in fact, all my relationships at Fox and FX are better than they've ever been. Dana and John and Peter Rice. But I was actually going because I wanted to try something new. I wanted to try movies again, which I had not done in a while. And I really wanted to try documentaries, which is a space I'm obsessed with watching. So I Were you not able to do it there? I mean, you are sort of the exemplary, I think, Chuck Lorre, Steve Levitan, there's a bunch of different producers that do have a lot of success on in the regular zone, which is a network um, or a big studio. When you and Shonda Rhimes moved, it was a big deal. So talk yeah. about what's changing in Hollywood. Did, did you feel you couldn't do that at the other places or or just you wanted a new, new a fresh new I felt place, all I could, I really couldn't. I mean, if you look, if you look at the the business dynamic, of Fox when I was at Fox. You know, there were little fiefdoms in a kingdom. Mm -hmm. There was the film division. There really was no documentary division. And there was a television division. So in the television division, I loved everybody there and I had great relationships. You know, there wasn't really an encouragement or an interest in me. They want to keep you there because Ryan makes the dough, right? Yeah. 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 So, and it's not even that I was frustrated with that because I never really pushed it. I never even tried, really. I had a couple meetings, but I, I didn't have anything I was passionate about at the time. I think ultimately with the Netflix deal, what it has become and what I'm making it is I wanted a channel within my within a channel. Like I have my own kind of channel within that next Netflix world and that you can click on my name and all of the things that I've either done in the past, curated and doing now come up. So it's sort of, that was a very interesting business proposition to me. I wanted those things to feed each other because I'm creating a, uh, you know, I'm doing pieces of entertainment, but they really all have a really specific worldview and a point of view. And, you know, 
I wanted all of that to be housed under one umbrella. And, you know, not everything that I make is at Netflix, but pretty much 85% of it is. And I like that. What's the difference in working there from your perspective? How did they get you to do it? Because it was a big deal, them getting you and getting uh, getting all these deals. Now, I know they're spending a ton of money and their their content budget is enormous. And, you know, I've recently called them the Amazon of entertainment. They've really, they've been around the, the track so many times around all the others. And even though Disney just premiered their streaming thing, it's been a while. It's been like Netflix has been tr- lapping them for a long time. So what's it like yeah. working there from your perspective different? It's different for me than it is for most people, which I understand, you know, because I went there and they wanted me to go there because, you know, they wanted me to create. They wanted me to create a lot and they wanted me to sort of follow all of my interests. And, and, you know, I'm at that age where it's like, do I really want to create or need to create yet another TV show? Maybe, but I'm interested in other things. What I like about working there is just an incredible amount of freedom that I have to sort of float between the divisions. And, you know, they look at their, their life, the creative team there as really teams. And I've actually enjoyed that. And, you know, within my contract, I have certain green light abilities and I have, I've really liked that too. Although I believe in never pushing something on somebody unless they are interested because they have to love it as well and market it and publicize it. So it just feels like there's just a tremendous amount of freedom and there's no no. And I think that when I moved there, that's what I was doing. My viewing habits had changed. I was only watching Netflix anymore. You know, I was watching The Crown. I was watching The OA. I was watching, you know, Making a Murderer. I was watching those things. That's what people were talking about. And it felt exciting to me. And then I had a meeting with them. This is Ted Sarandos? Yeah, Ted and Cindy and, and Brian Wright, you know, and they're very... This is Cindy Holland. Cindy Holland, he's amazing. And they're very hush-hush about, you know, figures and facts and figures. At least back then, they're much more transparent now. But they took me into a room and they put a map of the world on a screen and suddenly it began to blink with all of these lights. Oh. And those were the places where... <laughs> That's such a tech where, trick. You know that. That's I do t- now. But it was sort of <laughs> blinking about, but it was stats. It was like, this is no, where you're really popular. You're really popular in Brazil. You're super popular in the Philippines. Not so popular in Mongolia, but we're working that. But I had never thought of myself as a global creator. I thought of myself as somebody who was, you know, on the west side of L.A. making stuff occasionally in New York. But it just sort of opened my eyes, you know, and I know that it is a hat trick, but it was No, it's impressive. not a hat trick. It's, not, it's actually factual at the same time, impressive. And also yeah. saying you're popular is always a good thing to do to a Hollywood yes. person. Um, they they did that years ago. Ted Leonsis at AOL had a room and he, he would see, and he actually was like, this is when people are going to the bathroom. This is when people yeah. are watching this show. And he had a show that was, I think it might have been Donald Trump's show. He's like, this show is going to be big. And I, and I go, why? And he goes, nobody's on AOL right now and they must they're doing this other thing and they're then they're talking about it so mm. you know they had certain predictive crude predictive mm-hmm. characteristics then but what when you think about doing that um, and having that idea one is data one is knowing the data which I think I did a really good interview with Steve Levitan and he had no idea about any of the data on any of these streaming services because the companies didn't want to give it to him. NBC didn't want to give it to him or wherever he was. Um, and he was frustrated with that, the uses of technology. That's one thing. And the second is the idea, I was at a dinner with Chuck Lorre and me and the guy who was head of sales at Google were sitting, he was sitting between us. And he asked why the head of Instagram, the guy who found Instagram got so much money, of, you know, a billion dollars for selling. And why did he get so much of it, 300 million? And I said, because he owns it, unlike you, really. He owns it outright versus mm-hmm. a certain percentage. And he goes, well, I'm really rich. And I go, yeah, but not as rich as he is in one fell swoop because he owns it. And you're just an expensive employee who gets, they send you the plane or they send you the Emmy flowers or they, whatever. (laughs) I said, but they don't own it. Like, why don't you own everything outright? And they make it. And it was a really interesting discussion of moving from sort of an overpaid employee to an owner. Can you talk a little bit about, one, about data, how you look at that now? Had you ever thought about data and what's popular and what's not? And does it move you or do you care? Because you're also a creator, so you're going to make what you want to make and not, you know, see that it's popular in Mongolia or not. Yeah, I have a really uh, a weird, I think, worldview about creation. Because when I create something, I never think, is this going to be popular? I never think, what are the critics going to say? Right. I may think about that later, but when I'm in that process, it's like, I'm making this because I want to um, watch it. 
I'm interested in this. So I've always followed that very pure thing. And there were many, many, many years where, you know, you'd wake up and you'd have to get the morning report card, which was your ratings. And sometimes it would be crazy good in the case of Glee or in the case of American Horror Story or OJ or, and then sometimes it would just be okay, like with the normal heart or feud. And I remember dreading waking up sometimes because I knew I had a responsibility to knew, know how something did, but then the business changed. And then it's like overnight ratings no longer mattered. And yet you were still being judged by them. But then you'd get another report card in 45 days and then another one in 60 days. And I ultimately just found it to be very exhausting. So what I like about the streaming world is they don't talk to you about numbers, at least with me. Basically what happens in my world is I have a show and after the first weekend, we get on the phone and we talk about it. And it's sort of like, yeah, it's really good. People really like it. It's doing well. Or it's, uh, we're not really sure. It's building here. We're going to give it another 60 days. And then you have another talk. And by that point, you forget about it. So the metric of success seems to be different because, you know, you're one of many pieces of content on the service. Right, as it's a for subscription owner, service. Yeah. Right, yeah. As for ownership, I mean, before I went out on the town with this deal, that's something I thought about. Do I want to be a company? Do I want to own everything? Do I want to outright own my work? Which means I would really have to spend 75% of my time being a business person and really building that business model. And I have friends who have done it, who I won't tell you who they are. I think you can probably figure out, and they've hated it because it stopped them from being the thing that excites them the most, which is a creative person. So, you know, my deal with Netflix is up in another, I think, two and a half years. But that's something that I'm interested in looking at again. Right. It's what you make versus what you make, which is the platform you're on. Yeah, but what I have liked about the Netflix model, you know, even the way that they pay out your back end, you know, you know the rule going in. You know, like, if you make a movie there, they're going to pay you your back end up front. And that's the deal. You either take it or you're not. Whereas if you make a movie for your studio, you're chasing those receipts. You know, I made a movie in one of my first movies in 2009. What's that one? It was with Julia Roberts called A Pray Love. It was based on Liz Gilbert's book. And it was, you know, it made, I think, $230 million worldwide, which is an amazing amount of money to for a film to make. And I'm constantly trying to track that movie and constantly trying to figure out, well, you owe me this amount. Oh, yes, we're sorry. Here's your check. It just became like being an accountant was part of the job description. So this at least, I know what the rules are. And mm -hmm. I feel like that's liberating, you know. So what does Hollywood do then? I want to finish up. What does Hollywood do then if this is the case? You iterate down to a lot of creators because a lot of a lot of new creators are thinking this way. They're not thinking about going this through the system the way you certainly did. Right. Um, and I definitely did. I'm, I don't work for big newspapers. I like I work what I want to do and then they pay me. Like I don't I'm not an employee of very many of them. Right. So what does Hollywood have to do? Because you're at once a creature of Hollywood and then you're removing yourself from it. I don't know. I mean, I do feel that what's happening now in Hollywood streaming is the future. I think mm -hmm. we're in the future. I think the old way of, of doing business is pretty outmodeled and it's going to go away. And I think that what you've seen even in the COVID experience with direct to consumers, with the movie like trolls. trolls being, you know, a shocking overnight success that shouldn't be shocking to anybody, but okay. <laughs> I've always loved when Hollywood's shocked by what everyone's been doing forever. I was not shocked by it because yeah. I was there on opening day with my kids who were going out of their minds. And I'm like, please just sit here and watch Trolls, you know? <laughs> I, thought, I thought for Universal, and it was an incredibly smart move. But I, what I'm talking about, it's always, you know, the guys in their 50s and 60s who were screaming that the sky is falling when actually it fell 10 years ago. That's what I mean by the models changing. So I think that... Look, I love the experience of going to a movie and I, you know, in a community. I also love the experience of being able to pull up something like Trolls for my kids instantly. And I think that both can exist. And I think what we're going to see is the expansion of the net. That's what I think. How old are your kids? Uh, there are five and seven. Right. So they're right in that zone where they've changed their, they've never seen linear television. They've never seen anything but on demand in some way. Yeah. And like when I was their age, I couldn't, you know, I was obsessed with going out to a theater. They kind of sometimes don't want to. Right. Sometimes they do, particularly in the summer, they like it. But, you know, I just think that it's, 
in their DNA now. This is how they want to consume material. They grew up on screens, you know, and that's what they like to see. So what does Hollywood do? How do you see that shaking out? You've got a consolidation around Disney, uh, which I think is, again, far and ahead the biggest, and that's where Fox is now. Um, Mm -hmm. You've got Universal. You've got a bunch of other studios. But right now, the tech companies are the ones that many people feel like right now, if you pulled Amazon video uh, entertainment off of it, it would be a very large media company. It would be one of the largest. You have, you know, Apple moving into it in a sort of skitter-scatter way. Um, You've got Google, obviously, trying to figure out how to play. How do you look at at the tech companies when you, and you're with the one who's sort of the the closest to entertainment uh, versus tech. How do you look at that huge amount of money entering the picture and then what it does? I just think that there's just a, there's a a content war, you know, and I think people who can make content will be very well compensated for the net foreseeable future because everybody wants to be in that game. And I think that Netflix is particularly with their business model shown how successful it can be. And I think, you know, Disney's streaming service has become very successful very quickly. Mm-hmm. I think everybody else is kind of playing catch up. But I, I think that I can only talk about what I, as a content creator, where I wanted to go. I wanted to be there because it felt new and it felt exciting and it felt like the way that people want to watch stuff. That's, and I think that, you know, there's always going to be outliers, but I think more and more of these companies will try. And I think many of them will die away. And I think we'll be left like we were in the good old days of broadcast television with maybe three, four, five big ones. And, you know, you can already see the middle part of the business dropping out, you know, yeah. not as many show new shows are being created, not as many sort of, you know, $18 million movies are being greenlit. It's definitely happening. And I think it will continue to happen at a pretty quick pace. You know, I bet four years from now, many of the, these new channels, quote unquote, and new businesses will not be here. All right, we're going to talk about that when we get back and also where Hollywood is going with Ryan Murphy. He's the co-creator of a new Netflix series called Hollywood. He's also an incredibly famous television producer. He's made Glee. He made, uh, oh, God, a bazillion thing. American Horror Story, <laughs> 911. What else? What else? What am I missing? There's so Normal many. Heart, Feud, Normal Heart, Feud, American Feud was Crime great. Story. Yeah. I know you were saying it didn't do so well, but it was a wonderful, wonderful Well, movie. ultimately, it really did do well after 60 yeah. days. Like the, the report card came in and it was really positive, but it took a while. Later, later. Later yeah, older people well. watch television in a different way. Right, 100%. Yeah. All right, when we get back, we'll talk about that and more. At the Coca-Cola Company, Keurig Dr. Pepper, and PepsiCo, our bottles might still look the same, but some of them can be remade in a whole new way. Using 100% recycled plastic. New bottles made using no new plastic except the caps and labels. You'll be seeing more of these new bottles in more places, and that's thanks to you. Because when we get more bottles back, we can use less new plastic. Learn how our bottles are made to be remade at madetoberemade.org. Support for this show comes from 1Password. Our brains are great at lots of things, but remembering passwords, it's not one of them. They don't even like the job. Luckily, there's a way to free our brains from being password managers. It's called 1Password. 1Password combines industry-leading security with award-winning design to bring private, secure, and user-friendly password management to everyone. All you have to remember is one strong account password that protects everything else. Your logins, your credit cards, secure notes, or the office Wi-Fi password. 1Password's award-winning password manager is trusted by millions of users in over 100,000 businesses, from IBM to Slack. Right now, listeners get a free two-week trial at onepasswordcom memory for your growing business. That's two free weeks at the number one password.com memory. Don't let security slow your business down. Go to onepasswordcom slash memory. I'm here with Brian Murphy, who was an intern with me at the Washington Post. And we're going to do a road trip apparently right now. I yeah. didn't know that, but I'm very excited. Where are we going? Well, do you remember our road trip? No. To what New did York? We do? Oh, my God. Did I'll we? never forget it. Yes. Oh, okay. Me. This is Sorry. what happened. Okay. <laughs> you and I, the evil interns that we were, organized yeah. a group of people to road trip from Washington, D.C. to go to New York City and see Sandra Bernhardt and without Oh, my nothing. God, we did. We did. We and the did. thing that I remember about that trip, which is why I admire you then and to this day, was we came out of the play, 
This is where she was on the stage in that small theater, that fantastic. Yeah, and it was like, you know, and Sandra's a good friend, and it was at the height of her Madonna period, I think. You know, and this show was so great. And I remember getting out of it, and there were like six of us who went. And I was just like, well, that's the best thing I've ever seen. And I can't believe, you know, that I'm here in New York City. And I, I said, Kara, what do you think? And you're like, mm, I liked it. And I was like, that's it? <laughs> And I remember you got really mad at me because you're like, well, I need to think about it. I'm not just going to tell you what I think, everything I think right now in the middle of, you know, <laughs> fucking Greenwich Village. And then we had dinner. And I was like, I like her. She's funny. But the thing I really remember that I don't Go know ahead. if you remember the fun part was on the car ride up. This is in my Volkswagen. It, yeah. All we wanted to listen to was Tracy Chapman. Oh, we listened we? to it over and over. We must have listened to that Why album. Why did we do that? Fast Car. It would be Fast Car. It was that album. And yeah. I think that, yeah, it was, it, I don't know if that album had come out a couple months earlier. It was, this was the period I that interviewed we her for the Washington Post. Did you? She talked monosyllabically. Yes, yeah. no, she was super shy. She was super shy. And I also remember chain smoking in, in your car. I don't know if you smoked. No, time. I don't Did, smoke. So no. you probably were very cross with me. Probably. But I, you probably made me roll down the window. But I remember smoking. <laughs> the Tracy <laughs> Chapman experience. And Sandra, and Sandra, we, Bur- we should. It was so fun. Uh, we will do a road trip, although, you know, I famously gave up all my cars. I did a series of columns in the in the Times about it. Um, but we will do that. We will have okay. one. We will go see something. I'll have to think. On the road podcast, I, we can do it. I would do it. <laughs> but like I, admire, I, I had so much fun with you, and I, I admired you, and I cannot tell you a couple, you know, you, when you're in the newspaper business, you know, mm-hmm. you scatter to the wind. And I remember a couple years later, I had moved to Hollywood at that mm-hmm. point, and I remember seeing your byline, and I was like, <gasps> Oh, she made it. And I was so excited for you. I've <laughs> continued to be excited for you. But I <laughs> love that period of, of, oh. of my life in D.C. That was fun. You were a lot yeah. of fun. That was a fun time. I don't even know who else was with us. Laura Blumenfeld, maybe. I can't remember. Yeah. A bunch of people. Anyway, thank you for that lovely memory. But let's yeah. finish talking about okay. it. Um, so here you are figuring out what to do. You're going on a new thing. But now there's new ways of doing media. You have Quibi. I just interviewed uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg about right. that. And inexplicably, Meg Whitman is there. And and a bunch of others. TikTok, um, you see Instagram sort of getting into content in a really interesting way. Mm-hmm. How do you assess all those things? Do you look at something like a TikTok or a Quibi or, or, or any of these things? What strikes your fancy when you're looking at them? Are you like, ah, I'm not going to I'm not going to do that? And no, I really am a, a student of pop culture, right? Uh-huh. So I yes, feel like it's my that. job to sort of know what's out there. And also mm-hmm. I have a seven-year-old. So mm-hmm. my seven-year-old knows how to download any device instantly. You know, I'm kind of a dinosaur in that way, but now I've got him as a helper. So I am very aware of what is happening and what is coming and what is going and what I like and what I don't like and how young people are watching my shows now and you know, in a very different way, even than they did in 2015. Mm-hmm. So I'm very aware of how content is be con- being consumed and new fads and fads that are dying and, you know, what's going to be the new MySpace and things like that. I am aware of that. The thing that I really stink at, which I used to be really cool at, is pop music. You know, I used to be able to know, I could play name that tune with anybody and within two seconds get it. Now I'm like, who is that? So <laughs> I do funny. feel old, Hip-hop. you know. Yeah. 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 One, it's interesting, though, that my son's right now downstairs listening to Grateful Dead. For some reason, oh, he's gotten fixated on it. Uh, just, to, just today. I know. He's, usually it's hip-hop and screaming from the, you know, bitches yeah. from the, from the yeah. basement. Uh-huh. Hearing bitches and hoes from the basement. <laughs> but uh, which is, you'll, you'll enjoy that period of time. But when you think about that, would you create for those things? Do you ever, like, the other day I was thinking, I should do something on TikTok. I don't know what. And I'm, I, and, and especially because I'm consuming more in this pandemic because I'm seeing what, cre- there's a lot of creation going on right now with people yeah. at home and some of it really wonderful. Um, sort of showing where social media could be instead of this giant toxic waste dump that it had become. Do you ever think about creating for those mediums or just use them for marketing? For You've done a nice job marketing Hollywood, for example, yeah. on social media. That, yeah, that the trailer I mean, was great. The- I am interested in them. I and, mean, you know, I had just signed my deal with Netflix when Jeffrey Katzenberg approached me to do something on Quibi. And I was very interested in it because I felt he was onto something in terms of how we are digesting material and what is our attention span. Mm-hmm. And I know that because I used to do 22 episodes a year and then it moved down to 13 and then it moved down to 10 
and now it's at eight, sometimes it's six. And even with six episodes of something, an audience member is like, I just can't give you that commitment. I can do four. Yeah. So I felt that this idea of, um, you know, lessening attention spans is very interesting to me. And there is some dopamine hit that you get off of it. Um, you get instant results. You know how many people are watching you at a certain time. You know, you see that on social media. It's interesting. You don't have to wait, you know, and, and I am drawn to it, but I couldn't because of my deal at Netflix. I have what to. Would, what would you create if you were on those things? Which one, what would you make? I think what I, w- what I was interested in making for him is some sort of very sort of bite-sized horror series with every episode ending with some sort of cliffhanger, you know, that gets you to the next part of the story. I was very interested in that idea because I think that the horror genre is, you know, there is jump scares, there is kills, there is suspense sort of every naturally 10 minutes or you lose people. So I thought leaning into the best of that form was interesting and I was sort of drawn to that. I probably would do something like that. Yeah, that's an interesting. This sort of Charles Dickens of you, how very or Armistead Mopin. They that was yeah. how it was done in a in a serialized. You're talking about yeah. serialization essentially. Yes, but very small bites. Is there any part of it you don't like with the with sort of tech sort of beginning to dominate in the way you market these things? I, I assume that's how people are finding out about all your stuff now, or maybe not. How, I mean, generalized marketing doesn't happen anymore. I think the thing that's probably the hardest for me that that is difficult is the constant judgment the constant commenting, the constant magnification of your life and your choices and your creative life. And you can't get away from it. I mean, I remember when I first started off making something, you'd get one report card, which was the reviews. You would never get reviewed again after that first, a pilot had aired. And then you'd get the rating and then you'd sort of know where you were. Now, even on streaming, though, you don't get the ratings. The the critical assumption of your work goes on for months because of Twitter, which I don't like. I think that Twitter <laughs> as a platform is particularly toxic. Um, it's toxic and it gives a lot of voice to people who, to be, in my opinion, shouldn't really have that voice. Mm-hmm. And I think in their mind, they think that they're, they should. It's interesting to me. I like a little bit more rarefication in the cultural apex and it, it, it seems even, and I hear this with young people that they're very young artists are very afraid even to zig right or zig left. And when I talk to them about it and I, with a couple of them, really big names, you know, you sit down and you realize that they're making choices because they live in fear of 10 people who on this social platform on their phones seem to have very loud opinions, but really are in their basement and don't know anything. Right. And I, and I would say to these young people and I have like, you really can't make, choices based on a very narrow group of haters that in your brain system, the dopamine hit makes you think is the world hating you. So that I don't like. Some of it's good. Some of it's interesting. I have a a pretty large Twitter following and uh, I get a lot of feedback and I'm so used to it. I guess I'm a professional Twitterer, so I feel like um, uh, I feel okay with, but it does, I think it does give you signals though, but I think making decisions based on it is the problem. I think that's what happens. Yes. And also, you know, being a part of something where you get death threats constantly because of the content that you are providing or making Mm -hmm. is very scary. And then you have to narrow your life to protect your loved ones. That has been very um, difficult. The good thing about it is I think that it does give a voice to some voiceless people that I think do need to be heard. I do Mm -hmm. think that there is a lot of social justice stuff that happens on Twitter and that I really think is great. So it's not all negative. I just think right. that it's a lot of the arm, I guess it's the armchair critics that right. drives a little crazy. bit. It doesn't even drive me crazy at this point because I don't really read it, but I am aware when something scary happens, yeah. like we're going to blow you Some of it's like earworm. Some of it's a, it's yeah. an earworm that really yeah. gets into it. I want to finish up talking about two things. One, and I'll let, then I'll let you go. Thank you for being so generous with your time is, uh, the way that you have a, a troop around you, mm-hmm. a lot of the people that are in your stuff go from thing to thing with you, which is really interesting. Can you talk about that, like creating sort of that group? Because that's what one of the themes of Hollywood was, was this little group of people creating something together as a team. And initially they're at cross purposes and then they all become a team yeah. um, in, in an idealized way. It doesn't work, I think, like that in real life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're all pulling for each other that last during the Oscars, they're all, as, as, as things happen, 
they're all pulling for each other, they're all being part of a team. It was very like, go team, go kind of thing. And Glee was yeah. like that too, yeah. ultimately. It was mm-hmm. people who sort of disliked each other coming together in a mm-hmm. in a very touching and poignant way and needing each other. Talk about that and then la- finish up talking about creativity. How do you stay creative in this twitchy, instant by instant world? How do you create some lasting work, I guess? Yeah, I mean, my the, the people that I work with, I work with the same group of actors and the same creators and the same producers and the same designers over and over and over again. And people always want to know about that. And my answer to that is basically, you know, when I was growing up, the thing that I wanted more than anything that I could not get was a community. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't until I was older and I moved to a major city and I was there was other gay people and there was other you know, artists. So I think that I've been trying to go back in time and constantly just create the thing that for the first 20 years of my life I longed for but didn't have, which is a group of people who are interested in the same things, differing opinions, can fight it out, but but believe sort of in the same world ideals. Mm-hmm. And I'm very drawn to that. And I'm, I tend to be a very loyal person. And I like, particularly with actors, I'm very interested in the plight of many actors, particularly mm-hmm. older women, yeah, you who, talked about that a lot in yeah. in Hollywood. Well, yeah, Hollywood. I mean, you know, two of the leads are over 70 and they're the ones mm-hmm. getting all the action. And I think that's fantastic. <laughs> and you don't see that. Yeah. And so I'm interested in like, you know, Jessica Lang, what have you always wanted to play that no one has ever thought of you for? Mm-hmm. And yeah. I like doing things like that. Kathy Bates on and on. I mean, there's so many people that and I And you brought Mia Servino in here. There's so many messages going on there, which was interesting, especially yeah. around Harvey Weinstein. Yeah, she's a wonderful scene. actor. Yeah. But so that's what I'm doing. I'm I'm trying to create a utopian community that I wish I had had when I was a young person. But I believe in it. I believe in, you know, and sometimes somebody will do something with me and it will kind of work and maybe not be embraced, but then we do a second time at bat and then, you know, they hit it out of the park and are rewarded with worldwide acclaim. Darren Chris, I had that experience with. And it's really and also when you're working with somebody like Darren or Sarah Paulson. Who was in Glee and Sarah Paulson was an American, American Horror, Horror Story. American Horror Story and, you know, American Crime Story or Patty Lapone, who I've worked with three times or Dylan, you know, you, you get a shorthand and you get a language, you get a trust because my work very often pushes the boundaries um, and goes a little wild and a little baroque. And so it's good to have that, you know, shorthand and that safety net. Many, many of your things are about teams of people or groups of misfits or people that try to work it out together, uh, which has a lot of, if you think about it, Glee is the same way. And see, that's why, that's why I loved our road trip. I felt, I felt, I felt the spirit. (laughs) Yeah. We will do it again. I want to. And then in terms of creating, you know, like I always, I, I feel like I'm so lucky in that if I want to make something, I can make it. And I always believe that happiness is something to look forward to. So I always do have my eye on the next thing. And it's always just like, what am I interested in? What were my childhood influences? Who do I want to work with? You know, that this is a perfect example. My whole life, I wanted to work with Meryl Streep. I was the president of the Meryl Streep fan club in high school. What? Yeah, I was in high school. Like I had a group. I had a I had a group of five of us, and we would go on opening night to see every <laughs> Meryl Streep movie, and then go have dinner and talk about it. It was a weird. So group, you must have rewatched this week's. Uh, in- was it on Instagram or should you do it on TikTok? They did it on an Instagram. Their singing thing to Stephen Sondheim. Oh yeah, that was great. Yeah, yeah she was wonderful. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I always wanted to work with her, and you know, finally I found this part, and I sent it to her, and I said, "Will you go see this play, The Prom, and see if you're interested in this?" And she said, "Okay," and she went that week, and she said, "Yes, I'm in." So. I'm drawn towards that creatively. Like what kind of excites me? And it can be a person, it could be an idea, it can be a childhood obsession. It can be about wanting somebody I love like Sarah Paulson, right? Mm-hmm. Who sort of has come up being, you know, a supporting player. She wasn't that way in OJ for which she won all those awards. She was the leading lady. But but to say to somebody like Sarah, I want to see you be the lead in a story. And I want you to be an executive producer and help you help me cast it around you. I want to build something around you that you also own, that you also have points in. So sometimes the mission is that. It really does depend. But, and also I'm just, a, you know, to be blunt, I'm a, I was a born a very restless person, a very restless soul. And also because I came up in a time in the late 90s where I was told no constantly, 
no, you can't make that. No, you can't be that. No, you won't be a success. No, we're not going to help you. That when I finally started to get yeses, I just got into this rhythm of, well, I better come up with the next thing that's a yes because I won't get this opportunity forever. So some of that is also my damage, my psychological you know, barrier. But it's, it's sort of, I don't even understand it myself, but I know that I love creating things and ultimately that's what I'm interested in. I'm interested in the art of creation. Mm-hmm. And you don't feel, you think people will continue to pay attention. Like there's so much consumption right now during this pandemic. What do you think the result's going to be? I don't really know. You know, I think that, I think that this pandemic in terms of watching things and how we consume materials, I do think that it, it, you know, I do think that it set viewing patterns in a very major way. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think this will continue. But, you know, there's so much being created, and I do think some of that's going to go away because there's only so many creators who can do that. But I I do also think that, you know, it's okay to also have a different kind of success, which is a smaller success. Right. You know, not every... Unorthodox. You've seen that, I'm assuming. Yeah, you know... Versus Tiger King, which are very different than just the same as far as I'm concerned. And in my career, I've had those things where, you know... I had a really number of hits that I was lucky enough that were very big and very successful in a row, like Glee, American Horror Story, American Crime Story. And what I've realized is, well, I don't have to do that every time. I can do something smaller. And, you know, at Netflix, it's great because if you go in there and you say, I have something that is, quote unquote, not mainstream, but I'm passionate about it. They'll say, great, we'll make that, but the budget will be lower. And that's the rule. So I'm like, okay, great. I understand that. And then you can take a swing at something, you know? And I like I like that. So are you, last question, are you optimistic about entertainment right now? Very. And about Hollywood. Are you Very. optimistic about Hollywood? I am. I really Do you think am. the Hollywood you depicted could ever exist? There's still sexism and racism and, you know, it goes on and on. Do I think that it could happen sort of overnight? No. And it hasn't happened overnight, which is why I made that show, because I want it to. I'm frustrated. I feel like, okay, enough already. Let's, let's. So that is my answer to that. But I, I think that just the amount of change that I have felt in my own life, in my own career in the past five years, you know, from when I started working, I would say from, you know, 2010, 2011, I had worked earlier. I had Nip Tuck. I had Popular. Mm-hmm. I had a couple shows. But just the... The, the things that used to be huge battles and used to be very controversial to get on the air and advertisers saying, no, we will not support this. Just, just now what can be made and how easily and readily it's accepted and how there's, I would say that I never changed. You know, it was the executives who changed. There was a certain kind of guy that was an older white male who wanted to mm-hmm. see things geared towards him. And in my generation, what has happened is there's been more women Mm-hmm. And there's also just been guys who are a different breed, you know, people like Ted Sarandos and John Langraff and Peter Rice, mm-hmm. who want to make things that are not just for them. I find that fascinating. So I do feel like entertainment is getting better and it is getting more progressive. And the thing that I'm excited about is with every passing year, you see more and more voices that are allowed in the game. Like 10 years ago, would that the show you just mentioned, Unorthodox, that would not be on the air. Never. Pose would not have been on the air. So I think that what you see is these things are made, and the more specific something is, the more universal it can become. Right. So that show is now seen as a hit. So that show will birth three more things in that world like it. So the tent just gets bigger. It's interesting to me. All right, we're going to end on that, Ryan. That's optimistic, Ryan. <laughs> I also like being mean to Mary Hadar, Ryan, but that's I know. Okay. Like, tell me about Mary. I just saw her the other day. How is she? She's great. She's as bubbly as ever. She was just very, I think she was frustrated by me, but I will say she was She kind. tolerated. She was kind, kind to me, but I think I was a pain in her ass at the same time. Yeah, you were, but in a good way. Anyway, yeah. Ryan, thank you thank so much you. for coming on the show. You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer, Eric Anderson, is at Erica America, and my producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey ESJ. Ryan, where can people find you online? Obviously not Twitter, but maybe. Uh, I am. I don't do Twitter anymore. I pretty much do. Uh, the only social media I do regularly now is Instagram, which is Mr. R.P. Murphy at Instagram. 
All right. And you can find Hollywood everywhere. It's on Netflix and it's premiering on Friday, May 1st. Is yes, that correct? That's right. It's And it's terrific. You should watch it. If you like this episode, we'd really appreciate if you shared it with a friend and make sure to check out our other podcasts, Pivot, Reset, Recode Media and Land of the Giants. Just search for them in your podcasting app of choice or tap a link in the show notes. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Robbie. Special thanks to Squadcast.fm. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Monday. Tune in then. At the Coca-Cola Company, Keurig Dr. Pepper, and PepsiCo, some of our bottles can be remade in a whole new way, using 100% recycled plastic. New bottles using no new plastic, except the caps and labels. Learn more at madetoberemade.org. This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change... Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and everyday people about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen.